Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little bit stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less traveled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. This week, we are talking politics and we're chatting to Kelly Pollock, a political activist, knitting queen, feminist extraordinaire and host of the Two Broads Talking Politics podcast, now recognised as one of the most influential political podcasts in the US. If you think you're not much interested in politics or you don't care about the US elections, then don't switch off because there is so much going on in this conversation. Kelly talks openly about what made her want to get involved in political activism, how anxiety has shaped her career, how knitting has been important for both her health and her involvement in politics, and about the importance of educating boys from an early age about equality and feminism. In her spare time, of which I'm pretty sure she doesn't have a lot, as she's also mum to two young boys, Kelly's quote-unquote real job is as the Associate Dean of Students in the Social Sciences Division at the University of Chicago. Well, I was I was actually um, just going to start by saying I absolutely um, loved your description um, on your Instagram bio of yourself as uh, first of her name, smasher of patriarchy, mother <laughs> of sons, leader of committees, warrior for social justice, dweller by water, knitter of hats. So many things going on there. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's start with the, the the smashing of the patriarchy. How did you get into uh, the into politics in the first place? Yeah, so I have been interested in politics my whole life. I haven't done a whole lot with it for most of my life, uh, but I've definitely been interested in it. You know, I I grew up in sort of the middle of nowhere, Ohio, and uh, I probably looking back, everyone there was a conservative Republican, and I just didn't realize it because <laughs> that wasn't my household. I, I grew up with a mom who was outspokenly in the home, feminist and very liberal. Uh, So I was a a kid in the 80s and I was taught, you know, Reagan was the devil. And uh, so she was very formative in my political outlook. My father was very private about politics, private about a lot of things, but especially politics. And, you know, he always said your your vote is your own and nobody has to know how you vote. It's private. And I think he was probably independent, not registered with a political party as I was growing up. And so he didn't talk much about politics. I think he was probably a Republican back then. And, uh, and my mom did. So <laughs> I just heard a lot from my mom. And so uh, you know, I, I think they grew up in such an interesting time in the 60s and 70s. My parents were both at Kent State University when the uh, National Guard shootings happened and there were four students killed. And so it was a very sort of turbulent political time for them. And I think that informed a lot of sort of how they thought about politics and thus how they talked to me about politics 
Just as a bit of background here, the Kent State shootings occurred at Kent State University, as Kelly said, when the Ohio National Guard opened fire on unarmed college students at a peaceful mass protest over the bombing of Cambodia by the US, which was an extension of the Vietnam War. There was a significant national response to the shootings and it culminated in over 4 million students going on strike across the US and led to the temporary closure of hundreds of universities, colleges and high schools. I feel like we're in a time of pretty significant political engagement at the moment, but it's so easy to forget that back then students were powerful in their activism and their action. And this is just one of those examples. It was this weird mix, right? So my mom talked about politics, my dad didn't. But my mom was not outspoken about politics outside of the house. Uh, she she does not have a lot of self-confidence uh, still. And I think even if she's listening to this, she would probably agree with me. Uh, and uh, so I think, you know, she's always been a little concerned about talking much about politics outside of the house, you know, worried that people wouldn't agree with her. And and so I I saw her doing that, but somehow didn't internalize that. <laughs> and I thought, I'll just talk about whatever I, you know, whatever strong beliefs I have. And so, you know, my my interest in politics started early and my uh, sort of proto-activism started pretty early. I remember at some point in elementary school, I think it was like second grade, all the boys would sit at one lunch table and the girls would sit at another lunch table, but that wasn't required. And so I led this like revolution of girls <laughs> who were going to sit at the boys lunch table and, you know, I break down that. these barriers. Uh, it quickly became the tables just switched and the girls sat at the other and, and the boys <laughs> sat at the girls all table. But I, I tried. <laughs> yeah. oh, elementary school politics is it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's interesting what you say about your parents. Um you know, your mom talking about politics and your dad not, because I was just sort of listening to a few bits and pieces and reading some work that you've written in preparation for this. And I was just reflecting back that some people do talk about politics freely, but for a lot of people, it has that same sort of stigma as talking about sex or talking about money, that there's quite a strong taboo around politics still in society. And um, my parents are the same as yours. Like my mom w would speak very openly about politics. Actually, they probably both would. But, um, you know, a lot of people would be quite nervous of expressing their own political opinions in in public. Um, how did you become more open about doing that? Was that a gradual process or were you always kind of then like, my heart is on my sleeve? Uh, yeah, I think my heart's always been on my sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> I, I joke that my heart's not on my sleeve so much as on my chest because I wear a lot of political t-shirts. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely has sort of always been fairly outspoken. You know, the other thing that people don't talk about publicly much is religion. And my bachelor's and master's degrees are in religious studies. So religion is also something I've spent a lot of time thinking and talking about publicly. So, you know, I, I just... I think I grew up with a lot of privilege that I didn't recognize at the time and was always sort of, uh, you know, taught that girls could do and say anything that they felt and that girls had every bit as much uh, 
intellectual capacity as boys. And so I never back down from a a fight, <laughs> intellectual fight, physical fights I would back down from for sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, sort of never, never back down from that. Always had very strong opinions uh, about the things I have opinions about. I mean, I care a lot about deep thinking and nuance and and not sort of taking sides quickly. But, uh, but once I form an opinion, it, it's pretty strongly held and I'm not quiet about it. I, I do think, though, that I, I went through a long period of time where I didn't I didn't talk all that much about politics because I didn't think all that much about politics. I had strong political beliefs in that I knew I was a liberal Democrat. I always voted in every election. Uh, elections don't happen quite as frequently here as they do over on your side of the pond. But <laughs> when They're they too happen, a penny over here these days, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I certainly always voted and was informed of, of what was going on. But, you know, I went through a long period of my life where I was in college and in graduate school and starting my career. And, you know, politics was just sort of on the back burner and I wasn't thinking about it a ton. I, you know, I was thinking about it during presidential elections and, and things like that. And I'd get mad about politics, but I just, you know, I didn't think about it that much. Uh, and it was really the, the 2016 presidential election in America, which, I mean, it, it changed everything here uh, for everyone. I know so many people for whom that election was just sort of earth shattering and, and made us all wake up. And so I, you know, I think certainly before that I was I was talking more about politics, but part of the privilege I've had is living in a, a bubble basically since I left Ohio. You know, I've lived in Chicago and in Southern California, which are both very liberal places. I have, have surrounded myself with friends, both in real life and online, who are very liberal. And so it it's not scary at all to talk about politics publicly because everyone I'm talking to basically agrees with me. <laughs> mm. And I think that's a danger for whoever you are, isn't it? Is that you're basically in your own little echo chamber and that inevitably, whether in real life or now online, we generally surround ourselves by with people of a similar view to ourselves because it's more comfortable. And then what you hear back is a reflection of your own opinion. So you are rarely challenged by people who think differently to you or will oppose you in any kind of vehement way on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that is actually quite a big challenge for someone like me. You know, when I think about the press that I read would be fairly liberal. The people that I'm friendly with are usually relatively liberal. You know, I how do you think people can kind of challenge themselves outside of that bubble to challenge their own opinions a little bit more? Because the what we see so much on social media now is that everybody is so staid in their own opinion, which I think is so dangerous, you know, that you get people who are kind of just can't see another opinion, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, well, I think that people so desperately want conflict in their lives in some way that uh, at least among Democrats in the US right now, there is a lot of conflict between super liberal Democrats and moderate Democrats. <laughs> so, you know, so it, it's true that I'm I'm never around a whole lot of outspoken Republicans or conservatives at this point, but um, but <laughs> I am sort of constantly in the middle of these arguments uh, that, that people are having between, do we nominate really progressive Democrats or do we try to tack back the, to the center, uh, which I think is sort of a, a little bit of a false dichotomy. But 
so, you know, I, I think there's still some uh, disagreement and, and some people looking to sort of uh, maybe not understand other people's viewpoint, but uh, beat them over the head with their own viewpoint. <laughs> You know, I, I think there's there's been some really interesting research that's been coming out about a technique called deep canvassing, which is a technique that uh, that people use usually on issue-based campaigns, but sometimes on uh, candidate campaigns as well, where instead of just trying to uh, sort of get out the vote, be, you know, make activists of the people who already agree with you, that people are going in and trying to change people's minds. Okay. And, and so usually when you're canvassing in a political campaign, you're knocking on doors of people that you think already agree with you and you're just trying to make sure they're going to go vote Got or to, go uh, yeah, yeah. donate money or whatever it is. You know, typically they're not going to knock on doors of people they think are completely, totally on the other side. But people who are, you know, maybe somewhere in the middle toward the other side of things. And instead of having a 30 second conversation where you remind them where to vote, you go and you have a 10 minute conversation about issues and really get people to open up. And it turns out that a lot of the way you can do that is through storytelling and and through emotions. And, you know, I think it can be really interesting. I think it's really scary to do, though, right? Like, it, it's really easy for me to be like, yeah, I'll go knock on doors of people who agree with me and just try to get them to do a little more or virtually knock on doors, you know, but but trying to open up to people because you have to do it both ways, right? You can't just expect that people are going to listen to your views and then share their own stories. You've got to be willing to open yourself up to and open yourself up to maybe hearing things from their point of view. And, and that's the part that I think is really scary and is hard to do and sometimes is legitimately scary, right? Like there, there are times when it's probably not a good idea for you to be the person knocking on a stranger's door and, and, and asking them to to open up about an, an issue. But to the extent that people can do it, you know, I, I think it can be really valuable. And the way I see that as uh, sort of maybe operating in the real world is Figuring out those techniques, learning how to do that, and then doing it in your own life in the times when you are around people who don't agree with you. I think what Kelly says here about opening yourself up to others, about telling stories and about being vulnerable is really interesting. And it isn't just applicable in political campaigning. There are loads of times at work and in our personal lives when it would be helpful if other people agreed with you and you wish you could bring them around to your opinion. There's a whole TED talk about this topic by a guy called David Fleischer, which is really good. So I'll put the link in the show notes if you are interested. But just link to that, you said obviously in that in that scenario, you're uh, voicing your own opinion and and opening yourself up. I guess one of the things um, that puts a lot of people off getting involved in politics is that as well as opening your own view, you're also opening yourself to criticism from people who would oppose you. And um, I find it interesting talking to people who are often very intelligent, very driven, very motivated, and their response is, oh, I wouldn't touch politics with a barge pole. You can never win. Everybody hates you. You know, you're just opening yourself up to massive criticism. I find that inter an interesting barrier to people. Is that something that you have come across quite a lot in your work, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I think my response to that is to stop thinking about winning. 
You know, so I, <laughs> okay, and it, it's impossible to completely stop thinking about winning, right? We have elections; people win, people lose. Like <laughs> there is winning that happens, but I, you know, really, I think that the way we all win is to start talking to each other again and having conversations. And and so, if you accept the idea that I don't have to know all of the answers. You know, if I get into a conversation with someone and and they're just into debate and to score points, I don't have to play the game they're playing. I can listen to them. I can make the points I care about. I don't have to have a response to everything. You know, I, I think we just need to change the whole conversation and say, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to worry about whether I'm having an interesting conversation with you and hearing you as a person as a person. And that's hard to do. It's nearly impossible to do on social media. I've had back and forth with people trying to do it on on Facebook and Twitter, and it just doesn't work very well because of the format. But I think in person, you can, especially people that you already have a relationship with, like, you know, if this is your uncle you've known for 20 years, like, uh, you know, maybe you can actually have a real conversation. Yeah, sure, sure. There's quite kind of linked to that. And w- when you touched on social media, there's, um, there's quite a big dialogue over here at the moment about the abuse and threats meted out, particularly to female politicians via social media, you know, rape threats. And um, there was a politician this week whose child had been threatened via, via Twitter. Um, that sort of vitriol is awful and disgusting is that something that is a problem in the u.s as well like is that talked about in u.s politics or is that not something that really features with you guys and no it's it's certainly something that happens here there was a candidate who was going to run for u.s senate in maine uh, it's a going to be a really really big race in 2020 and uh, she ended up dropping out because of death threats so it's it's certainly something that happens here you know, I think people all over the political map are getting a little savvier about social media and understanding, you know, sometimes those threats and and trolls, sometimes they're not even real people, right? I, sometimes this is a bot and sometimes even when it it is a real person doing it, it's somebody sitting in a troll farm in Russia who is <laughs> responding to you and trying to get you riled up and You know, so understanding that I do a lot of blocking of people on social media, you know, for a long time, I I wanted to be the kind of person who was open to talking to everybody. But, you know, if if you're just going to be spewing uh, terrible things and attacking people and not trying to have a conversation, I'm just going to block you. I don't need that in my in my life, in real life or on social media. And so I I think people are getting better at that. Uh, There's definitely some people who are really amazing at sort of turning around trolling. Uh, So Chelsea Clinton is a prime example of this on Twitter. She's just amazing at being able to to turn things around on people. Shannon Watts, who is the founder of Moms Demand Action, she's also really good at that. And so being able to sort of see those people and see the way they've been able to hold their own on social media and and not get scared and back down. You know, I mean, I think there's sort of different levels, right? Like if it's just a bunch of trolls saying mean things, like fine, I'm going to block you or ignore you. I don't care. If you're actually threatening my kids and it seems like a viable threat, then that's going to be different, right? And and I don't know exactly what we do about that. I, I certainly think people should report those things to the authorities and maybe they can do something and maybe they can't. But, but that is a, a scary reality now. 
on a slightly um, happier note, should we should we just wind back a bit, Kelly? Um, what I was just going to ask you about um, your degree. You mentioned um, that you started off with a degree in religious studies. I always ask people, what did you want to be when you grew up, <laughs> when you were little? Um, I love that question. I wanted to be the president of the United <laughs> States of America. <laughs> lofty, lofty ambitions. Good one. Okay. Uh, yeah. So actually, it was kind of funny during the 2016 election here. So I, I had wanted to be president. I have a an autobiography that I wrote in fifth grade. I think it was a school assignment where I said wow. I wanted to be president of the United States. And I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, I'd be the first woman president. And then thinking, gosh, I hope I wouldn't be the first woman president. Well, the 2016 presidential election was the first election that I was old enough to be president. Here, you need to be 35 to be president. Yeah, and so I was... I was old enough, finally, and there still hadn't been a woman. And I was so excited that Hillary Clinton was going to win and and be the first woman president. And I wouldn't have to bear the burden of being the first. And uh, then, of course, she did not win. Uh, so we still haven't had a woman president. So I, I yeah, I, I don't want to be president anymore. <laughs> but I did. Uh, and then at, at sort of other parts of my childhood, I wanted to be an actress. Um, So you did an MA in religious studies. And how did your career kind of take its path after that, Kelly? Um, And and (laughs) what are you up to now with your career? So I had intended to be a college professor. So that was why I was in I was in a PhD program, actually. And I I was going to study religion and then keep studying religion forever and, and be a college professor. After about one year in grad school, I realized that was not a good career path for me. I I went to grad school immediately after undergraduate, which was probably not the right path. And I I got really depressed. I was in a a not good uh, mental state. And uh, after three years, I finally finished up the work for the master's and said, I just can't be here anymore. I need to leave grad school. This isn't a good situation for me. So I left. I was living in Santa Barbara, California, and I left and I moved to Chicago where I still had a fair number of friends because I had done my undergraduate near Chicago. And so I I moved to Chicago and uh, just started asking everyone I knew if they knew anyone who was hiring, doing a lot of job interviewing, went to a terrible interview for a company that did like corporate spying, basically. And I I was like, I cannot do this. This is terrible. And a friend of mine from college was working at the University of Chicago and she was working in the Dean of Students Office in Humanities and they needed someone to stuff envelopes for a week. Uh, They were sending out admissions decisions. This was still done by mail back then. And they needed someone to stuff envelopes. And I said, sure. And uh, 16 years later, I'm still at the University of Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) You've progressed from stuffing envelopes. never left. (laughs) Uh, Yes, we don't stuff a whole lot of envelopes anymore. Uh, So, uh, yeah, so it it was one of those things that, you know, no matter how hard you work in life, some of it just comes down to luck, right? So I was stuffing envelopes. They had a, someone had gone on maternity leave and her temp hadn't shown up. So they needed someone to temp. That turned into a three-month temp job. Then she never came back from maternity leave. And so I I stayed there and did the job she'd been doing full-time. And then, you know, then people noticed that I was working hard, asked me to apply for another job and another job. So 
uh, so I've worked at the University of Chicago ever since. I am now the Associate Dean of Students for the Social Sciences Division. So social sciences here is everything from anthropology to economics. Uh, and so I'm the, in, in my role, I do a lot with graduate admissions, fellowships, disability accommodations, uh, lots of looking at sort of policy and, and how it affects students. Uh, so all sorts of things that are not really in any way related to what I studied in graduate school, but are very closely related to having been in graduate school, understanding what it's like to be in graduate school, understanding what can go really, really off the rails when you're in grad school, and trying to help students have a better experience. Kelly mentioned earlier that the 2016 general election was a bit of a turning point for her. For liberally minded Americans like her who fully expected to have their first female president, Trump's win was a huge shock. Hillary undoubtedly had her detractors, but as an outsider looking in, the one thing that amazed me was the number of women that voted for Donald Trump, despite the allegations against him of his treatment of women, the comments he had made about women and his behaviour during the campaign. To me, this is one of the things that makes politics endlessly fascinating. People's voting behaviour is driven by so many factors, and sometimes things just don't go the way that you expect. I asked Kelly how she got into her current role after 2016 and how she turned her personal activism into activity. Sure. So uh, digital activism, I think I started really in the 2016 cycle. So before the actual election, I started and I'm not alone in this, but I started to be much more outspoken, especially on Facebook. I wasn't yet really on Twitter, but uh, especially on Facebook, talking about the election, talking about uh, how disastrous a Donald Trump presidency would be. Shockingly, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, so just really being a lot more informed and a lot more vocal. That's when I started listening to a lot more podcasts. I was listening to several political podcasts pretty regularly. And so I knew a lot about what was going on. Uh, as terrible as the election was, I, I really do like the horse race of presidential elections, of, of tracking polls and seeing who's ahead. And uh, it, it's scary, but <laughs> it also uh, is, is really great. Uh, so I was becoming a lot more involved. The other thing that was happening simultaneously to that is that I had gone into therapy for anxiety. So starting in fall of 2015, I, I had really noticed my anxiety levels ramping up. There were a lot of things happening around then. My uncle had just died of cancer. The Paris terrorist attacks had just happened. Donald Trump was rising in the polls in the Republican primary. So there were a lot of things that were sort of really scary. And I found myself just sort of overwhelmed with anxiety. And so I had gotten into therapy, was starting to deal with those things about two weeks before the 2016 election. I went on Lexapro for the first time. Thank goodness I would not have survived the election if I hadn't uh, gone through all of this. At the same time that this election happened and it became clear that I needed to do more, I was also in a mental state where I could start doing more that I hadn't been previously. And so right after the election, I mean, I think like literally right after the morning after the election, you know, I was texting back and forth with my parents. Uh, my dad is now a Democrat, was not when I was growing up, but is is definitely now a Democrat. You know, my mom was just like, what are we going to do? How how are we going to deal with this? And I said, we're just going to move forward. We're going to do everything we can do 
there was a, a saying that Hillary Clinton liked to use, and I think it comes from maybe the, the Methodist or the Lutheran faith. And it's it's something like, do all the good that you can do in the time that you can do it, you know, for all the people you can. It, it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but something like that. And And so I said, that's what we do. We do what we can do. We figure out what those actions are. And immediately started having meetings with small groups of my friends where we would just be like, okay, what actions can we take? You know, who who can we donate to? And so immediately starting monthly donations to the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and, and you know, sort of looking for actions. But I think a lot of us still were sort of really flailing about a lot of the infrastructure that's been built in the U.S. for activism hadn't been built then. It's all been built as a response. And so we, we didn't have an indivisible to go to. We didn't have, you know, five calls, emails that we could get. All this stuff came about later. But the the first thing that I found that I could really latch onto and do and feel like I was doing something uh, was actually knitting pussy hats for the Women's March. So I, I knew the Women's March was coming. It was coming in January of 2017. And I'm in a, a ton of knitting communities online. Knitting has is, is been really important to me. And someone started talking about these these pussy hats. They were going to knit these pink hats that looked like cat ears. And, and we would just get everybody in the Women's March wearing them. And I heard about it and thought, this is amazing. I can knit hats. That's something I can do physically. I can see myself making a difference. And I didn't hear anyone else talking about it. And I kept talking about it in knitting communities. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? What is this thing? And uh, I just <laughs> kept knitting. crazy woman talking about pink hats? Yeah. <laughs> and I just kept knitting and knitting and knitting. And slowly people started going, oh, wait, I want one of those hats. Can you send me one? And so before the Women's March, I think I had knit something like 35 hats and mailed wow. them all over the country. And I, that was sort of the moment. The Women's March, I was in Chicago. I didn't go to D.C. I went to the Chicago March. And seeing an entire city full of people wearing pink hats, carrying signs, marching together, it was this uh, – the the weather had been gray and terrible in Chicago for weeks leading up to that, including the inauguration day. And then the day of the Women's March, it was bright and sunny. It was 60 degrees Fahrenheit. It was just an amazing, wonderful day. And I think that was the moment for me that I thought, I can do things that make a difference. There are people all over this country who want something different than what happened, uh, who are not happy that we have elected a president who is clearly a, a terrible misogynist, and and we're going to stand up and we're going to do something. And so that was really the start of my activism. And uh, and importantly, I think I brought my, my older son to the Women's March that year. He was five at the time, I think, something like that. And brought him and showed him and said, look, this is who we are. And so from that moment, I knew that not just activism was important, but including my children, my family in that was going to be really important to what I did. Wow, what a great start. And I know that the Women's March was huge in the in the US. Obviously, it was big here, but it was absolutely enormous with you guys. And how did that sort of springboard you into what you did next? Probably the next thing I did, I, you know, sort of jumped into as many things as I could mm. <laughs> very quickly. But that did you was, knit any more hats, Kelly? I, I did. I ended up knitting <laughs> well over 100. Wow. I, I think okay. something like 120 uh, of those hats by the time I was done with them. 
And the the next thing I really did, though, was I joined Indivisible. Okay, so tell us a little bit about that. That's not something I have really heard of in the UK, Kelly. Can you tell us a little bit about Indivisible? So Indivisible started, it was right around that same time, December, January uh, 2016, 2017. And it really started with a, a married couple who had both been congressional staffers and they said, you know what, we know something about how to influence members of Congress, and we know what works having been on the inside of those offices. And so they wrote up something called the Indivisible Guide. And it was things like, hey, here's how you call a member of Congress and, and register you know, your beliefs and how you want them to vote. And, and this is how you show up at a town hall and make a difference. And you know, it started as just this like Google document that they put up. And I, I think it like crashed Google because so many people were trying to access it so quickly because so many of us had never tried to talk to our representatives, <laughs> you know, right? I mean, I think so many of us didn't even know who our reps were. And so this guy became super popular right away. Uh, they went on Rachel Maddow very quickly and, and people saw it that way and, and were very, uh, very interested and excited about it. And so these local chapters started popping up. And so I live in Chicago. Chicago has a main sort of indivisible Chicago group, uh, but we also have an indivisible Chicago South Side group. So down on the the south side of the city where I am, there are indivisible groups in tiny little towns that you've never heard of all over the U.S. Uh, sometimes it's a town. Sometimes it's a big city. Sometimes it's a congressional district that has its own indivisible group. And so these groups, uh, there are hundreds of them now in the U.S. And uh, and that's really sort of the point is hold our leaders accountable, not just Republican leaders, Democratic leaders too. make sure that the people who are representing us in government are are doing the things that we want them to do. And and really organizing around things like, you know, holding candidate forums. And so you know who is actually running for office and you know what they stand for. Knocking on doors, you know, figuring out, training each other how to canvass, how to phone bank, you know, all sorts of things that really weren't happening on the left in the U.S. prior to 2016 and, and really organizing that. And so I got involved in my little local chapter of Indivisible. I was running their Facebook page and, and of course, going to meetings and, and helping write the bylaws. And that, I think, really sort of gave me the confidence that, you know what, I I have just as much to offer in this as everyone else does, right? You don't have to have a degree in political science. You don't have to have a law degree. Anyone who is willing to step up and do the work has something to offer. It's really good. And so um, that then, obviously, in time led to you starting your own podcast, which is Two Broads Talking Politics, which I have come to really enjoy and love. And um, something as someone who is interested in American politics without having a massive amount of knowledge about the nitty gritties of congressional <laughs> elections and what the difference between the Senate and Congress is, um, is kind of has been very useful for me. Um, <laughs> how did that come about? And, um, and how did you and Sophie, who is your co-host, um, get that off the ground, Kelly. <laughs> so it started with a Facebook post. It, like I mentioned, I was listening to a lot of political podcasts and I kept listening to them after the 2016 election. I, you know, and I had sort of in the back of my mind, maybe I'll start a political podcast, but I didn't have any special skills or special knowledge to do that. 
But Sophie was ranting on Facebook. This was August of 2017. You guys were friends already, were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we were friends. We had been, uh, she had gone to the University of Chicago uh, for her master's degree. And so we had met while she was working as a student worker in my office. We had stayed friends when she moved to Wisconsin. And so she was ranting on Facebook about Steve Bannon. And, uh, you know, she she's very good. She's a writer and she's very good at sort of laying things out in a very logical way, but also, you know, ranting sometimes. And one of her friends said, uh, you know, I, I wish you had your own political show, Sophie. I learned so much from you. And somebody else said, you should start a podcast. And that was it. I jumped in and said, I want to start a podcast. I'll do this with you, Sophie. <laughs> and about a week later, we had our first episode up. So, we, I am not the kind of person who likes to overthink things. <laughs> I'm very much a, a doer. And so oh, I was like, all right, let, let's do a podcast. And, you know, the first one, if you listen to the first episode, it sounds terrible. We hadn't figured out all the audio stuff. Second one, I think, is equally bad. But, you know, we eventually found our way and, and started, you know, knowing what we we're doing. I think, you know, probably 10 people listened to the first one. <laughs> It sort of grew from there, and I, I figured out Twitter and figured out how to use Twitter as a podcaster, and and that's really, I think, what what really made things grow was figuring out, hey, on Twitter you can connect with people and and you can ask people to come on the podcast and and get listeners that way, and so that's sort of how it it really grew from there. But you know, it really just started. Uh, frankly, I think it was because our husbands were sick of listening to us talk about politics, and we're like <laughs> we got to do something. We we need to keep talking, so let's just talk to strangers on the internet. A couple of people who have reviewed our podcast have said uh, that they they like that we're not shouty. So a lot of political podcasts tend to be, you know, a lot of people sort of arguing loudly with each other or talking over each other. And, and that's definitely not our style. You know, we, we mostly do interviews and, and our interviews are like, here, here's some rope. Go either make something beautiful with it or hang yourself, you know, <laughs> whichever. Uh, I see our role at informing and amplifying. So I want to help people who are not getting any other attention anywhere. You know, they're running for school board somewhere and no one is paying attention to this race. And if someone donated $500, that would make all the difference in the world. And, you know, hey, I've got a platform they can do that on and and they have interesting stories to tell. And so I, I'm there for that. I'm not there for sort of, you know, the glory of being the host or something. It's like, I just, I want to hear your stories. I want to help amplify them. Cool. And linked to that, um, in terms of hearing the stories, is um, you have the a series of interviews that's hashtag vote her in, which is specifically looking at getting women elected to, I mean, a whole variety of positions. Can you um, just talk about looking specifically at um, not just the dem- democratic vote, but having female candidates as well, Kelly, and how that is really central and important to the work that you're doing? Yeah, definitely. So that series is a collaboration that we're doing with an author named Rebecca Sive, who lives here in Chicago. And we had interviewed her a long time ago. It was a a cold email that I had sent out saying, hey, you wrote this book about women running for office. Can, Can we interview you? And then she came back on when she'd written a new book called Vote Her In. And it was about sort of looking at the path to electing the first woman president. And after we had her on the second time, she came to me and said, hey, I I have this idea for a series. You know how to do podcasts. I've got a lot of connections. 
you know, let, let's uh, put that together. And so we've been able to have these uh, just really incredible interviews. Uh, she had connections to both Amy Klobuchar and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, who are U.S. senators who are running for president. Kirsten Gillibrand has, has since dropped out of the race, uh, but we got to interview them and just a, a ton of really uh, amazing women along the way. And so, yeah, we've been looking at things like uh, how women running for office uh, face different challenges, especially if they're running for executive office. But, you know, in in the U.S. It, politics, running for president is is sort of something really unique. It's very different than a, a prime minister role, for instance, because you are not being uh, elected first as a legislator and then. Uh, promoted by your peers, you are running for this position that's the executive position, the the sort of boss. And it's it's something that a lot of women, although they might be very good at being executives, are not necessarily good at knowing how to run for an executive position. It has a lot of interesting challenges. You know, it's not... Uh, it's not a coincidence that someone like Donald Trump became president because he is good at the kinds of skills you need to run for that office. What are the particular challenges that you think women have in that race, you know, in terms of running for that executive office, whether that's the president or, you know, high se or Senate or whatever? Well, I mean, one of them is just that it, people have not seen a woman as president in this country yet. And so when you are imagining who will make a good president, you tend to imagine the people who have been president, uh, hopefully the ones that you think were good at it, and and you're not seeing women. That's true of a lot of executive positions. So we have women governors in the U.S. and we have women mayors, but it's still rare. And same with executives of companies, right? It's still the case that a lot of CEOs are men. In the U.S. of 45 presidents, 44 of them have been white men. And so it's it's hard for people to break that. It's also the case that for women, there are certain skills show as an executive uh, that can often be seen as negatives when women portray them. Uh, the the bossy woman stereotype. Yeah, yeah. So if a woman is good at being a boss, if she's bossy, then she sounds shrill or mean, or, you know, bitchy. Never words ever, ever applied to men. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so, so there are just these challenges. I mean, for women, uh, there are even things like, what do you wear when you're running for office? How do you dress for this job? And, you know, there was a, a story about Barack Obama and how he had such decision fatigue that he would just, he had like seven of the same suit and would wear the same suit every single day. A woman could never get away with doing that. And so there's, there's just all of these added pressures about how do you dress? How do you do your hair? You know, all these things you have to think about that to some extent men have too, but just it, it affects women more. And so thinking about all those and talking to women who are running for office has been, it's been really eye-opening and it's been really important, I think, in, in helping other women envision themselves as being able to run for office. And um, much as though I don't really dare to predict anything in politics these days, and perhaps we're um, churlish to do so, do you <laughs> have any thoughts about, A, who the Democratic nominee may end up being, and B, whether you think there's a good chance of success. 
So it certainly looks like the Democratic nominee could be Elizabeth Warren. It won't be a surprise to anyone who's heard me talk before to know that I fully support Elizabeth Warren. I like her a lot. I, I have met her briefly and she's just really, really fantastic. And really smart <laughs> and is the kind of like hardworking, smart woman that I desperately want to have as president. Uh, I I think the reason I say I think that she very well could be the nominee is that she has been rising in the polls. Uh, since I read she, this week was the first time that she was leading the polls. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So she has and she's not leading every poll yet, but she is leading some of the polls. And it's just been this steady upward climb. So it's not like a big jump after a certain thing happens. It's just been up and up and up. And it seems like the more people meet her and know her and see her, the more they like her. And so I, I think it's possible. I, I wouldn't say it's a guarantee. There's still a fair amount of time left. Who knows what sorts of you know, <laughs> things can happen in, in politics <laughs> so quickly. Uh, but given the trajectory of all of the candidates, it looks like Elizabeth Warren is probably going to end up the nominee. And the other front runner, and really the only other person I can see being likely, is Joe Biden, who is the, the former vice president. And... Um... One thing I just wanted to finally, I presume, an answer to part B of my question, I'm assuming you are wholeheartedly confident <laughs> that there is going to be a Democratic victory, Kelly. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm wholeheartedly confident. I am confident that if it is a fair election, that the Democrat will win. It is certainly the case that the American public, the majority of the American public would vote for a Democrat. Uh, however, the two things standing in the way of that are a, that the majority of the American public doesn't vote. Yes, because you guys have a about 50% voted in the last election. Is that correct? Yeah, and I do expect that to be higher this time around, but it will not be anywhere close to 100%. As usual, at the end of our conversation, I threw the floor open to Kelly and asked her if there was anything else that she would like to talk about. Yeah, so I, I think the the thing that has been consuming me for much of the past uh, month, two months, is uh, is this new website that we've launched called Demcast. And uh, Demcast is it's a, a grassroots media site, and it's a a nonprofit. the The website is it's designed to be a place for grassroots activists and uh, grassroots groups and campaigns to really get their stories out. So the kind of stuff we've been doing on the podcast, but on sort of a much larger scale. And so we have a number of podcasts who've joined uh, the Demcast network, and uh, we have all sorts of different kinds of stories. We have people writing op-eds. We have people writing, uh, you know, articles. And so it's really meant to be sort of the the one-stop place that people can find all of this information. And part of what that means is that it's a place that has sort of a, a lower bar to getting published. And so if there are women, uh, especially women, doesn't have to be just women, <laughs> uh, but I really encourage women to uh, who, who have something really interesting to say, who have an op-ed that has been hanging around in their head and they want to, you know, sort of get it onto 
paper, so to speak, under the screen, and uh, or they're a candidate running for office and want to announce their candidacy or or any of those sorts of things, or just want to say, like, I have an hour a week and I want to help and I don't know how to help. Can you help me figure that out? Like that, that's the kind of thing that Demcast is there for. And so uh, I would encourage people to to check that out. It's DumbcastUSA.com. Uh, obviously a U.S. focus, but, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to have uh, an op-ed or two about what's going on in the U.K. as well. <laughs> and where can people find you online with the podcast as well, Kelly, and your other work? Yeah, so the podcast is twobroadstalkingpolitics.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Two Broads Talk and, uh, and, you know, all the places you can find podcasts. And we have episodes three times a week. So uh, pretty frequently, we try to do sort of short conversations each time. So, you know, 20 minutes or so each episode. And uh, and you can find uh, Dumbcast, of course, at DumbcastUSA.com. You can find me on Twitter at Feminist Kelly. Good name. Good handle. Good handle. <laughs> We recorded this conversation a couple of weeks ago and Kelly asked me at the time when it was going to go out because politically things are moving so fast on both sides of the Atlantic at the moment. For context, we are deep into the red zone of Brexit negotiations over here and in the US, President Trump has just been impeached over the accusation that he pressured the Ukraine for dirt on Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. Trump has also just withdrawn American troops from Syria in a surprise move that has drawn criticism even from his allies. If you're listening to this next week, next month or next year, goodness knows what may be happening. (laughs) Maybe just send me an email to update me. That's all for this week, though. If you enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend as we are always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast in on iTunes or show us some love on your socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. Otherwise, see you next time. <laughs>